Amen. Well, friends, it's so good to be back with you again this morning. I've been able to be back the last couple of weeks, uh, just being able to uh, kind of tee up for, for joining you all here in a couple of weeks. Uh, finally, full time. It's been a long time coming, but I'm so glad to be back here in the meantime. And uh, I'd like to invite you to go ahead and at this time, turn with me to Psalm 126 in your copy of God's Word. Well, the words, of course, on the screen behind me, but love to uh, hear the rustling of Bibles and cell phones being pulled out. It's always a good sound to hear when the Word of God is opened. Now, we'll be in Psalm 126, as you can probably imagine, because we're going to be taking a brief detour in light of Clayton's absence this week as he and his family are traveling out to Utah to go pick up their car. But you might be wondering right now, well, why are we then in Psalm 126? Why don't we continue on with our Exodus series, right? Well, quite simply, uh, Clayton loves Exodus, so I'd rather have him preach the next one from chapter 2. But personally, and maybe a little selfishly, Psalm 126 is just one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. And it's such a fitting passage for us this morning, and I couldn't help but want to preach this same passage to you and for your sake this morning, especially in light of that conversation about us being truly a church plant. Now, as you turn to Psalm 126, you might have noticed that it says that this is one of the Song of Ascents. Now, for many of you already know that right here, toward the end of the Psalter, we see 15 short psalms that were specially purposed to prepare the heart of God's people for worship as they made their way up Jerusalem, literally uphill, every year to the Temple Mount to worship God. Now, each of these songs of ascent, as they are known, are reflective by nature. And they continue to cause us on this side of the cross still to fix our eyes upon this same Lord that we read of here, who is our Redeemer, our Restorer, and truly, catch this, our Resurrector. Psalm 126 has held a very special place in my own heart over the past several years for many reasons. Specifically, it has carried me through so often through life's diverse seasons. Seasons of admittedly intense suffering and also exuberant rejoicing alike. This psalm deals with matters of both death on one hand, but also resurrected life. And has proven to me time and time again that God does not ever trivialize or patronize our life experiences. He knows them all too well. He cares. See, in all things, the Lord has used this passage in my own life personally to strengthen my faith and hold my soul together in the midst of even adversity. We feel that here in this world, especially in a post-COVID world now. Of course, we know that we live in a culture today that constantly tries to temper and, dare I say, euthanize our pain and our trials rather than be anchored in the loving providence of God. Modern psychology, for instance, has taught us to explicitly deny the existence of God and the sufficiency of his word. This teaching is rooted in the teachings of Carl Jung and Sigmund Freud, who denied God's sovereignty and even his word especially. And this modern psychology has become more and more popularized in our culture, so much so that it often replaces talk of religious theology. But this false secular theology that we face here in this culture often fails to recognize and confess that our chief relationship in life is truly to be with God himself. And that true blessing 
only comes from his covenantal faithfulness to us. And so Psalm 126, in many ways, serves as a corrective for us and even for our broader culture. It teaches us to view all of life's seasons through a heavenly lens. It is equal parts reflection and celebration, a recollection of past blessings from God's own hand, but also future blessings that are yet still to come. And so bottled up within this short psalm is a sweet refreshment that has been made ready by God for our souls. So as we remove this figurative cap and hear and receive now this passage, my prayer is that we would drink deeply of this psalm, of God's goodness especially though this morning, and that we might find our hope to be solely in him. So let's go ahead now and read from God's holy word, Psalm 126. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Friends, this is the inspired, authoritative, and inerrant word of God given to us in love, forever faithful and true. With this still fresh in our minds, let's go ahead and pray. Father, we ask as we now not just read your word, but hear the preaching of your word in this hour, that you would stir up within our hearts a holy zeal for your name once more that you would cause our hearts to be enlivened by your Spirit's power and working within our souls, that we would see, as we prayed earlier, Christ our Savior before us in this very passage. May we know the fatherly hand of you, our good and gracious God, over us, sovereignly providing all things for our good and for your glory. And so, Lord, I pray that you would use this time, that you would use even me as the instrument your mouthpiece, so to speak, in this hour to declare the mysteries of the gospel here in this place. I ask, O oh God, for your anointing in this way, that the Spirit would work within our hearts through the reading and the preaching of your word, that I myself, as your messenger, would get out of the way, and that your word would be declared to us in boldness and in power to bolster our faith and lead us to repentance and true life in you. So we pray all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Well, friends, many of you already know that I'm a very hopeful and optimistic and yet even reminiscent kind of person by nature. I often tend to consider what God has done for his church in years past as oftentimes the basis of my hope for his continued faithfulness to us. And this church plant is no exception. And we see this same truth of God's past blessing and, and faithfulness and future blessings even right here exemplified for us in Psalm 126 this morning. We see how his past blessings described in the first three verses form the basis of the people's longing in verses 4 through 6. And so the message of our psalm this morning is fairly simple. It is that because God has proven himself faithful in the past, 
he will indeed prove himself faithful in the future. Again, this is a very simple message for us to grasp, but it is the core, the essence of this passage. And so our sermon will be divided up into two parts in that same way. First, that God has proven himself faithful, and second, that God will indeed prove himself faithful. And furthermore, in order to better understand this idea that we see here in this psalm, the idea of contrast, specifically, will be so vital for us as we seek to understand the deeper meaning of this passage as well. Now, speaking of contrast, for those of you, like myself, who are into the arts, such as music or literature or photography even, I'm sure you understand better than most of us the importance and the effectiveness of contrast. For instance, how do musicians like Greg and Wendy and Cole, how do they add depth to their music? Well, they play songs in both major and minor keys alike. How do authors like Laura accentuate their ideas? They use images that juxtapose one another. And how do photo editors, or even aspiring editors like myself, <laughs> uh, enliven our pictures? Well, they increase the contrast between two complementary colors to bring out the sheer beauty of the picture. Our passage this morning, then, is similarly designed to impress upon us images of contrast, loss and gain, captivity and freedom, sowing and reaping, weeping and rejoicing. Now, as Christians, we know that the blessings of God which attend us are made all the sweeter when we consider the specific sins from which God has saved us. Again, contrast. The same was true for God's people under the old covenant. And so the message of Psalm 126 is set against the backdrop of the harsh exile which Israel experienced as a direct result of her rebellion way back in the 6th century B.C. For 70 years, these people of Israel have been ravaged and taken away into captivity at the hands of the Babylonians. Their livelihoods, their liberties, even their liturgy, their worship, have been stripped away from them after centuries of turning their backs against God and bowing the knee to idols. And yet the Lord, the Lord in his kind providence, continued to show his unfailing love toward his covenant people in order to lead them to a place of holistic repentance. See, through the prophets such as Jeremiah and Ezekiel, around the same time that this psalm was written, the Lord declared to them the promise of God's unfailing love toward them, while simultaneously warning them of the just penalty for ongoing sin. And so to these same people who first heard this psalm, the gospel of grace was proclaimed in advance. Grace towards sinners by means of a mediator, and yet judgment for sin which no lawbreaker could ever satisfy. To them, restoration through the means of, catch this, resurrection was promised. Now this psalm is undoubtedly associated with the Babylonian exile. Consider verse 1 again with me here. In verse 1, we read in our ESV translation, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Couldn't believe it. But friends, we need to be really careful when we hear this phrase, the fortunes of Zion. See, these fortunes of Zion 
can easily be misinterpreted in some kind of prosperity gospel that God's going to promise us health and wealth and everything along with it. But really, these fortunes that we read of here, especially in the original language, don't necessarily refer to riches and wealth, but rather to the lives of God's people and even their livelihoods by extension. See, in the original Hebrew language, the text is actually a play on words right here in this first verse. It literally says this, when the Lord turned back the ones of Zion who had been turned back, we were like those who dream. And in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, known as the Septuagint, the same idea is present. The Septuagint reads for us in the Greek, when the Lord returned the captives of Zion, we were like those who dream. So really the idea of turning turning around the turned around ones is actually what's going on here. So this psalm then is not about the restoration of riches and wealth and prosperity. It doesn't proclaim again to us a kind of prosperity gospel. Rather, it is all about God's restoration of his people by the explicit means of the gracious gift of repentance. What we discover then about God is that he loves to be the one who turns around the turned around ones. He's in the business of leading the wayward to repentance and the weary to restoration. And he does this by, again, resurrecting, here's our theme, what has been most surely otherwise left for dead. But there's an element of God's tangible blessings, indeed, here in addition to this heart of repentance. See, at the last, we know from other scriptures that God will indeed return in abundant measure all that sin has destroyed, come glory. Though we experience suffering now in this life as believers, we have nothing short of the riches of Christ to take hold of, even now on this side of glory, though, in what we know of as the already, not yet. And so as we suffer persecutions for the sake of Christ's righteousness, we have before us a heavenly kingdom that cannot be shaken, over which Christ is ruling and reigning here, now, yet all the more fully in the future. And friends, by way of application, every spiritual blessing then has been reserved for us by Christ's own hand. Even now, those spiritual blessings that attend our souls in times of need are dripping down from heaven upon our wearied and worn-out souls, watering us and causing our faith to grow stronger in the midst of every adversity. And as the late Presbyterian pastor, one of my favorite heroes of the faith, Samuel Rutherford once said, Scar not then at suffering for Christ. For Christ hath a chair and a cushion and a sweet peace for a sufferer. I thought about doing that in a really bad Scottish accent originally, but I decided not to for your sake. <laughs> I didn't want to scar you away either. <laughs> and so this psalm rightly then begins with both an historical backdrop of freedom, freedom from enslavement, and yet an ardent hope for the future, friends. See, as Israel had recounted back then, God's restoration of times that were gone by. They couldn't help but marvel at the fact that God had proven himself faithful, yes, in the past, but also that he would love to do so again, even in their lifetimes. And so they wrote this song. See, for those who had become numbed 
by the sufferings and the evils that they had faced for so very long. Here, as they heard these words inspired by God, they came back to their senses when he had displayed his deliverance, when he pulled them back out of exile in Babylon. Like waking up from a deep sleep, these people of God of old were made to behold the hand of God, exercising his authority and his power before their watching eyes. Verses 2 and 3, I believe, illustrate this exact truth for us. It says this, Then our mouth was filled with laughter, and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, The Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Friends, it's here in our psalm that we read of Israel's, just dare I say, excitement for the things of God. In recounting what God had done, their when in verse 1 became their then in verse 2. So the result of God's great display of kindness toward them in the past caused them to be filled yet again with a great, uncontrollable exuberance, shouts of joy that could not be contained. For though they had once been a people held in captivity, left for dead, in Babylon, their release from this slavery and exile freed them up now to worship God once more on Mount Zion. The Lord had restored to them their, as theologians say, sacred interests in his ways. And he had revived their public exercise of worship of him alone. Liberty had been proclaimed to the captive ones, and the news of such liberation found its way to the ears, not just of Israel, but all of the nations surrounding them. See, in God's providence, the things that were suffered became things that were learned. So this brings us to a major turning point now in our passage. Here in verses 4 through 6, where we not just see God as being faithful in the past, but the fact that he will prove himself faithful in the future. See, though God had already shown great favor to his people, they now knew that earthly deliverances and restoration of fortunes and livelihoods themselves were not the end-all, be-all. For as good as God had proven himself to be in the past, the people recognized that theirs was now not just a physical need for restoration, but truly a spiritual need for salvation, for restoration. Restoration that ran so much more deeply than just a mere change in status from slave to free, exile to liberated one before the eyes of the nations. So the people, longing for God's salvation, cried out in verse 4, Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like the streams in the Negev. Now, unless you can read Hebrew, you might not know what the word Negev means. It literally just means south. It can also mean dry, as in the southern dry desert there in southern Israel. See, in light of God's supreme life-giving goodness, the people felt the inherent dryness in their own souls, a dryness <clears throat> that could not be quenched by anything other than the water of his covenantal, unfailing grace. Now, surely they were familiar with the prophetic word in Isaiah 55, Isaiah who lived shortly before this time, which details the promises of God 
that he will never withhold his life-giving grace from anyone who calls upon his name by faith. For instance, Isaiah 55 says this, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. And friends, of course, we realize that this is speaking about Christ. For it is Christ himself who offers us this invitation. But the people of Israel knew, even back then, before Christ came, that in God alone, their mediator of the covenant was living water. Water which alone could satisfy their dry and wearied souls. But what they may not have realized at that time, on that side of the cross, almost 3,000 years ago now, is that the exact sufferings that they had faced in the past had been used by God in his providence to form gullies over time for his saving grace to now flow down to their deepest spiritual needs. And this is why the picture of the desert called the Negev is brought to our attention here in verse 4. Needless to say, the desert in southern Israel was and still is an extremely dry place. It's where the Dead Sea is, which is famous for its massive salt deposits. All the water just is dissipated from that area. And nothing living could even exist in that Dead Sea. Now, years ago, I got to lead a trip uh, back when I was working for Liberty University to Israel. And we went down to not only the Dead Sea, but also that area known today as Masada, that southern desert. And I was able to see this whole place for myself and see how literally dead it was. <laughs> now, as an aside, the Dead Sea is so dense, so thick with salt even, that even the worst swimmers such as myself would have a really hard time drowning in it. <laughs> but the desert itself around that area is such a fascinating place because at various spots, even within probably about 100 miles or so from the Dead Sea, you can find scarce foliage and even the occasional oasis, believe it or not. I've seen it. And even citrus trees growing in the least likely of places. But how so? Because even in the most dry places on planet Earth, the ground itself has been irrigated over time to provide water in the most desperate of living conditions. Though the desert itself only receives about an inch nowadays of rainfall, all it took back in the time of this writing was for one sudden rainfall to come and go along the irrigated path and bring everything back to life overnight, if even just for a short time. And so friends, this is the same picture that the Israelites had in mind as they cried out these same words in verse 5, those who so then in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. See, they recognize that though in themselves they had no means of obtaining God's favor, His grace toward them would one day come upon them like a mighty stream of water rushing down, flowing down into the depths of their soul, exactly as He had purposefully irrigated them out well in advance. For the mercies of God are new every morning, and his faithfulness is great. Salvation certainly belongs to the Lord, and for his people, theirs was simply the task of sowing dead seed by faith in 
the God who raises the dead. Friends, do you recognize that we too, here at New Hope, are very much like that dead seed? Not calling anyone dead, by the way, individually. (laughs) But as a church plant, our life is utterly dependent upon God. We are in that same season in which we are sowing seed by faith while we anticipate God's rainfall. Do you here at New Hope ever look back on years gone by and recognize that God has sustained each one of you in the most dire of circumstances? And he's held you together in spite of the odds. Friends, I've known so many of you, a lot of you for the better part of about 12, 15 years even, and I see it. I see it every single time that I come to visit and preach for you all. I see how God has shaped you and sanctified you in the midst of the hardest of trials. But I also see how God has brought about these same times of trials and suffering and hardship so that his grace would be more sweetly enjoyed as we continue to grow. See, in principle, each one of life's trying circumstances seems to carve out a bit of us in our souls, do they not? For those of us who have suffered losses, severe losses even, of various kinds, we know that a part of us that we once enjoyed is now unable to be experienced again to the same degree here in this lifetime. Like running your fingers through tender soil which leaves a trail behind you or tilling several lines into the ground, we look at those times of sorrow, of tilling, as being less than perfect and ideal. And it is precisely those seasons of being tilled in which the soil has been made tender and purposefully dug into. It's in these times that God has prepared for us the most perfect work of God's grace in our lives through Christ. Christ, who is indeed our master gardener. Friends, we as God's beloved then are never left for dead. We are not simply that tilled up ground left there without purpose. Rather, we are those who are now planted beside streams of water, purpose to bear fruit, as Psalm 23 tells us, in just the right season. Though we often find our circumstances met by unfavorable conditions and ailments and struggles of various kinds, the soil that God has placed us in has been carefully curated and crafted by his own hand to water us in the exact way that he has planned out for us. And friends, on this side of glory, we of course not fully understand why we then go through these various circumstances, the things that seem to mount up against us, the obstacles. But we as believers would do well to accommodate ourselves as the Puritan Matthew Henry once said, to all of the dispensations of providence and be then suitably affected with them. For the harps are never more melodiously tunable than after such a melancholy disuse. The long want of mercies greatly sweetens their return. And so as a final point of application, what are the gullies that have been carved out in your own life? What are the conditions and the personal experiences that you have carried and perhaps felt even weighed down by 
in recent times? And how might we as the church, the family of God, seek to care for one another in light of these present circumstances that you and I face? How might we then even seek to care for one another in light of these things? Well, friends, Psalm 126, in our last two verses, 5 and 6, give us this promise. Those who sow in tears shall, shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, literally watering the dead seed with your own tears, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. See, the irony of all this talk about soil and weather conditions and even sowing seed here in these last final two verses is that every single part of this process of seeing God's bounty and growth in our lives, seeing grace have inroads into us, is entirely contingent upon the author and giver of life himself. God alone is the sovereign one in the act of tilling the ground of our lives and cultivating it and planting seeds which are as good as dead on our own and bringing the proper sunlight to bear and the weather conditions and bringing forth life bursting from these dead seeds and in maintaining the healthy growth of the young plant to full fruition and finally the harvest. Friends, the Spirit of God himself is the one who gives growth and vitality. So we must lean upon him in all things. And Christ, our Savior alone, is the one who proves, even in these experiences in life, to be then our resurrection and our life. For he is the true vine, of whom we are simply the branches. And he is the righteous branch, into whom we as believers are grafted. For though Christ died for our sins, he was raised again to life that we might have life in him. Friends, as we close, know then that God is not apathetic toward us, his church, nor toward you as individuals here this morning as his beloved child. No matter the station of life that you find yourself in right now, pray, pray with boldness and confidence that you may receive mercy and help, grace rather, to help in time of need. Know that God has dealt with you in love and that he has purposed every single one of your days to display this same loving kindness toward you in Christ with streams of mercy that flow down to the deepest parts of our lives. And by God's grace, recognize the ways in which the implanted word, the scripture, the word of Christ himself, is like a seed within your own soul that will bear fruit in God's good timing for joy that is truly endless is truly found in him. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you again that you truly are our master gardener. We thank you, O Lord, that though we are like seeds scattered often wondering when and how, O Lord, you will bring life back to us when we feel pressed down on all sides. You truly are the one who is the author and giver of life. And so, Lord, we ask 
that you would cause us, even now, in this season of sowing seed, scattering it by faith in your hand, in your kind heart, that you would console our hearts exactly where we need it, O Lord. Show us, O Lord, in good time how you would plan to use us, even here as a church. Continue to grow us, O Lord. We, again, miss those who couldn't make it this morning, those who've been so faithful along with us for a few years now here. We ask, O Lord, that you would bind us up, though, under the banner of Christ, that we would be a people united by your grace under the banner of your love, that we might go forth, O Lord, to again shine the light of Christ into the darkest of all places, and that you would do this work first in our own hearts. So spirit work, apply these truths from your word to us so that Christ would be adored and exalted all the more as he goes with us into our workplaces, to our schools, and to the lives of our families and friends. We pray all this in Christ's holy name.